if you've got a Bible, please go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. I have an excitingly challenging message for us this morning. And I've been reading this verse over and over again and and God's been challenging me in the biggest way. I'm going to read through it and then I'm going to break down the, the back end of the verse and then I'm going to go back and address the start of the verse. So don't panic. I'm not leaving things out. I just want to be able to do it in an interesting, funny way so that you can all understand what I'm trying to do right here. Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemished, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This verse, Paul writing to the church in Philippians, is challenging to the core because it expresses a job that he said, I'm, I'm, I'm finished with you and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be away. And in my absence, I want to challenge you to something greater. I want to challenge you to everything so that the work that I've done in you may not be done in vain. So that everything I've poured into you actually achieves something. What Paul's writing here is that I don't want to just create a church for the sake of it. I want to create a powerful people that can go out into the world and affect change into the, into the surrounding world around them. So he's writing in a way to say, I've given you all these tools. I've given you all these things. But please do as I ask so that it's not been done in vain. If we're not going to build anything, the tools are useless. If we're not going to go and do anything with our faith in Christ, coming to church on a Sunday morning is great to worship Him and it builds us up, but it builds us up for nothing because we go and sit on our hands. I've been preaching, if, if you're new here, firstly, welcome. But I've been preaching the last sort of five weeks on a challenging, die to yourself, let's get on with what God's asked us to do type message. So for those who have been here for that, this is a a carry-on, but for those who wouldn't, this is going to be a little bit challenging. So forgive me, but that's where we're going. Verse 12, Paul is writing, and he's writing to express to the lovers of Christ, my brothers and sisters, fellow heirs in him, do as I've asked you to do so that my work's not labored in vain. Verse 13, it says, it says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That everything we do in this Christian life, everything that we step out into is for him. It's to glorify him, to give him praise. That he's working in us, but not for our sake, for the world's sake, to glorify God. So the more who come into him, glorify him. It's a river that flows through us, not a dam that we wall up so that we get all the goodies and no one else gets any goodies. 
Because the goodies are to glorify who he is. The goodies are to, to express what it is that God, when God gives you a gift, it's not about the gift. The gift's not for you. The gift's for those around you to glorify the Father. So when we get to heaven, you don't get well done for, for the gifts that you had because God gave them to you. You get well done, my good and faithful servant. He who listened to my voice, who obeyed what I, what I asked him to do. The gifts are given for the building up of the body. So when you operate in a gift, it's for his goodness. It's for him. The things that we do in our life are for him. Verse 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's no Greek and Hebrew that can change that around for you. It's no grumbling or disputing. We do it in love because of who he is. We give ourselves because of who he is. It's very hard to read Paul the Apostle and not understand that verse. Paul had all the opportunity in the world to whinge and whine and carry on. But he did it because of the love of God. He did it because it was about, it was about Jesus. It was about God in him. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are in a crooked and twisted generation. Just look at the news for a minimum of two minutes and you will find a crooked generation. We are at the moment seeing things we've never ever seen in the history of the world. We are seeing a push toward Satanism and toward darkness and evil in so many different facets that we've not seen the likes of in a very long time, if ever. Just the other day, I watched a news article live on air about, we were talking about it in the car the other day, about a famous American singer who's just bought out a, a clothing line for children that's satanic, comes with horns and it's all black and they get a voodoo doll and things with it. This is starting to become open in our society. So when we read this to a, cook, a, a crooked and twisted generation, this is not a generation to come. We are in a crooked and generation right now. We are in that place that Paul's speaking of. We're in the place... Oh, I'm not going to go there. <sighs> Got to keep the worms shut, cans of worms or open things among whom you shine as lights in the world. The place out there, the darkness out there, is our working ground. That's where we go. We come in here to worship, to be built up, to be sharpened, and then to go out into there and be the light in that place. You don't dim the light down when you go out, and then when you come back in, you turn it back up. We are called out there. We are called to the workplaces, to the families, to the parks, to the pubs, we're called to that place with this message that Paul's talking about. Everything I've given you is because you're in a crooked and twisted generation and now I call you out into that place. Paul's saying there's, there's stuff for us to do and you're the children of Christ. Be blameless and innocent, clean hands and a pure heart. Guys, we have to be looking at ourselves and going, God, I want to bring myself in alignment with you. Grace abounds, absolutely. You are covered by grace. 
but we need to watch where we're stepping and walking, where we're putting ourselves, what we're seeing and reading, how we're talking. When you read through the scriptures, you see a, a generation of people watching themselves, wanting to walk towards him, keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus, on the things that are above, with, with clean hands. It's, yes, it's not about sin. Your sin has been forgiven. As far east as the east is from the west, you are forgiven and without blemish. But you now have a job to renew your mind, to bring yourself into what Paul talks about as a fullness with Christ. That's how we keep our hands clean and our hearts pure. It's not that you get a slap on the wrist when you do something wrong, but it's, man, I don't want to be there anymore. I only want to be here. So I twist myself every time to get myself back onto who he is. Not because I'm a bad son, but because I want to be up here with you, Christ. I don't want to be there anymore. So when someone highlights something to me, hey, Ben, this is not real great. I, I, I go away and I think, man, he's right. And I can see the mess behind me. I can see the trail of destruction that I've created. God, bring me back to where you are so that I don't have that mess. I want to be able to be digging, not cleaning up behind me. A child of God without blemish and hold fast to the word of, of life. Hold fast to the word of life, the Logos word. Hold fast to Christ. Hold on to who he is and what he's asking us to do. And you will find everything that he wants us to do, everything of who he is in the scriptures. He will reveal himself to you. And it's Paul saying, hold fast. That's the only thing I need you to hold on to. And I promise you'll get where you're going. And even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If I give you everything to see who he is and God calls me into a place, it doesn't matter because I've brought you forward. That's sacrificial love. That's what Jesus did. He laid everything down so that we may be whole in him. That's sacrificial love. Paul's saying, even if I'm a sacrifice for what you have, I'm so glad that you get to be brought up in Christ. What he's saying in that is I lay down myself. I lay down my entire life and everything that I think is good to me because it's better that you know who Christ is in a real authentic way than it is for me to have the things of the world. I read a couple of weeks ago, Paul saying that my life is not worth living if I'm not doing what Christ asked me to do. That's a declaration of him saying nothing else is important except for your gospel. Nothing else is important except for who you are, Christ, and what you've done for me that I may show the world so they may have a glimpse of who you are. But as you'll notice, I skipped possibly the most challenging thing in this verse. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. A pause for dramatic effect. I've wrestled with this verse. I've had conversations after conversations and I was talking with Paul about it and I said, I think I'm going to preach on this. I think God's telling me to preach on this. And I've been wrestling this for a few weeks and he says to me, bro, you need to be careful. And I went, I know, but I can't shake the fact that God's told me to preach on this. That we have to understand this as, as, as the body. What God's bringing us into in the next phase of who he is and what he has for us. 
we have to understand this, that the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, no matter how you look at that in the Greek and the Hebrew, how many texts you go to, the word is fear. I know, I went as far as I could go to try and see where the word would be different. I went to about 30 different, different verses of the Bible to say, have they, have they missed something here? But the word is fear. And it means to be frightened, to be fearful, to squat down and cover your eyes so that no one can see you. Fear. So I started wrestling with this and I said, God, is this the only place? Is this the only place we see to say with fear and trembling? But it's not. Hebrews 11.7, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as, the, as of yet were unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. That Noah built the fear, sorry, built the ark in a reverent fear of who God was. 1 Peter 2.17, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Job 28.28, 28, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. When you look through the scriptures, it's there so much. 364 times, I think. So I start thinking, okay, God, what are we doing here? What are you telling us? Before I get to that, I just want to express that when it says to work out your salvation, you have to understand that we are three-part beings, body, soul, spirit. The Bible is clear on that. I'm going to preach on that next year to give us more context. But the reality is, is that our spirit man is saved, hidden in Christ, as the Bible says. Forgiven, sins removed as far as the east is from the west. But our soul, our mind, will, and our emotions is not in that place. Hence why Paul says we must, be, we must renew our mind because it's that thing that's not being renewed. It's that thing that struggles with faith. It's that thing that struggles to know that God loves us and our sonship. It's that thing that, that, that helps us understand, not to understand that he is our provider and that he will give to us. It's our mind that needs to be review, renewed. So when he says to work out our salvation, he's saying that it's our mind that needs to be worked out. To know him more. That's why we read the scriptures again and again and again and again. We pray, God, show me who you are. Because we're hungry for our mind to begin to be renewed into the things of who Christ is and who he is in that. So this verse, and I've heard it used to say that, you, that means that you, we're not saved yet. No, you are if you've given your life to God. If you've, if you've trusted him as your Lord and Savior. Your spirit man is locked away. But now we have a job to do like James says that there's a, there's a work for us to go and complete now. It's in the renewing of our mind to bring about Christ to a world who doesn't know who he is. Is that okay? Does that make sense? But we still haven't wrestled with the, the fear aspect. Because for the longest time, especially since I've been in church and been a kid, we've had an incredible focus on, on the love of God. And of course we would. Because his love is so incredible and so amazing. But there's almost been this uneven tilt where we've kind of become spoiled kids where we get to do what we want and it doesn't matter because God loves me. But what we don't understand is that has actually taken us to a place where, where we're not living in the fullness of who he has for us. So there's a picture I want to show you. It's a, it's a juxtaposition or a... Jess is going to get cranky at me for using that word, but I, I don't know what, how else to express it. It's two different pictures of the same thing. There's, a, there's an understanding in the scripture of a thing called truth intention, 
where the Bible almost expresses to us opposing points, but it's in the Scriptures, so we have to wrestle with it. So if this verse says this, and this verse says something a little bit different, we have to understand what's really being said. Because in all those verses that I shared with you, fear is also used in 1 John 4.18, where it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So God, what are we doing here? Is there fear in the love? And should we work out our trembling with our salvation, sorry, with fear and trembling. Which one is right? So depending on how I argue my point or how I uh, show the scriptures, I just use one John and then I can not have to go to what Paul's saying and express fear. But you, you have to understand that there's a truth intention. There's two things being said here. If you are fearful that you're not going to have any money, you're living in the fear of one John. That's the fear that God's not going to provide for you. That's where he's saying there is no full love. But let me show you this picture that John has. And it's, it's so amazing that John shows that, that, that it's John that says this. Because in John 13, 23, 25, there's a picture just before Jesus goes to the cross. And the, the disciples are sitting around and they're questioning Jesus as to who's going to betray him. And it says the disciples that Jesus dearly loved, John, was at the right hand of him at the table. And he was leaning his head on Jesus. Peter gestured to this disciple to ask Jesus, who was he referring to? So the disciples are saying to John, John, ask him, ask him, who's he, who's he talking about? John, ask him. The dearly loved disciple leaned into Jesus, into Jesus' chest and whispered, Master, who is it? We see this picture that we don't understand in our Western culture. If I was laying on Brad's chest, people would be like, hey, it's a bit weird. What's going on here? But you go to India or Sri Lanka, I could tell a fun story. You go to India or Sri Lanka and the men hold hands, pinkies. They stand in the street and hold hands. I was on a bus. Brad failed to tell me this. Hey, bro, they're pretty friendly. I sat next to a very good guy, David. And as we were driving on the bus, he put his hand on my leg. I was like, okay, I can deal with that. Ten minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, hands still on my leg. I'm thinking... Uh, I have a few questions. Then Brad tells a joke and he moves his hand to the inside of my thigh and he's clapping like this to the jokes. And I, this was, I think it was one of my first mission trips I'd ever been with Brad. I start going, I don't want to offend this guy. I don't know what the rules are. So then he puts it back on and I'm moving my leg, like trying to shake his hand off. We get out of the bus and Brad and I think Clint was with us, cackling themselves laughing. I'm as concerned as I've ever been. Get off the bus. And then they tell me it's a cultural thing. They understood love and closeness as a cultural thing. So when John leans his head up against Jesus' chest, it's a sign of love. It's a cultural expectation of this is the one whom I love. So John is, there's this picture painted where John is so close to Jesus that his head, he's nestled into his, his bosom. And that's beautiful. And that's the picture of you so long as the church. Let's go and sit on, on daddy's lap. I, I heard that growing up. And I thought that was amazing. Let's go and sit on daddy's lap. And there is a time for that. But let me tell you, now as a grown adult, I don't sit on my father's lap. We hug. We handshake. And he gives me amazing advice. And we talk. But I don't sit on his lap. Because I've grown up now. I've come through that. But there's another picture that John that's painted in Revelation. And it says this. 
Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Sorry, Revelation 1, 17, verse 18. And in the midst of the lampstand, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a, fl- like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth. Case a, sh- uh, a sharp two it sorry. From his mouth, case sharp came. Sorry, I can't. Sorry. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of the death of Hades. John saw Jesus in the flesh, and he laid on his chest. But when he saw him in glory, when he saw him in the fullness of who he was, he couldn't help but lay prostrate before him. He fell on his face in glory of Jesus. In combat sports, when you give up your back, it's the worst position you can be in. It's the most vulnerable place. Same with police officers in an army. To lose your back is your most vulnerable vulnerable position. That's why when we see people in worship and they lay down, it's the most vulnerable place you can be before the Father, before Jesus. John sees Jesus in all his glory, in the fullness of who he was, and he falls down on his face, boom, as if he's dead. The same John who earlier was resting on his chest. He doesn't run before him and wrap him up. It's so good to see you again, my beloved. It's so awesome. I'm so glad I'm here. He sees the glory of Jesus and he falls poof, on his face. Because the glory of God, the fear rumbled through his body to know that's who Jesus is. That's who I worship. And he falls on his face. The position he took was to worship him with everything that he had. But the position that Jesus takes is he puts his hand on his shoulder. He says, don't fear. I'm the one who I told you I was. You see, it's our job to see the glory of Jesus and to worship him from that place. It's his job. To, to comfort us and to bring us into that place. So I'm not saying that we, he won't love us and pour love out on us, but it's a position for us to take where we go, God, I see the fullness of who you are. I see your hair. I see your, your tongue like a sword, and I'm going to worship you from that place. That when we come into contact with Jesus Christ, God, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who hung on a cross to bring us into fullness, when we see him in all that he is, there's nothing but pure glory toward him. Jesus, we worship you. I've never understood why I get emotional when I read this. And I've asked God so many times, why can't I laugh or or jump around? But when I read this verse, I'm like, man, I want to see you, God. I want to see who you are. I want to see that what John saw. I want to see your hair like wool. To describe somebody like that, to be able to to picture who they are and then just fall on your face because he's so good and so worthy. This picture is also, Jesus describes this picture when he teaches the disciples how to pray. 
They say, how should we pray before you, God? And Jesus shows the same example. He says, our Father, relational, love, connection. The first words we relate to God, our Father. I'm a son. I love you. There's a love connection. Who art in heaven, powerful king enthroned, hallowed be your name. My Father, who I love so much, you are powerful and, and everything. Hallowed be your name. Glory be your name. So there's this picture of sonship in the very beginning of the verse of the prayer that he's my dad. He's my father, Abba. But then the second thing is, but I don't forget who you are. You are holy, holy. And I worship you. One of the things we talk about often as Christians is that we want to be with the angels in heaven. Do you know what they're singing? Holy, holy, holy. In your presence, God, I will worship you. That's why sometimes I struggle when, when we seek his presence and we're singing about ourselves. I go, we don't understand what his presence looks like. Because there's no way John could talk about who he was because he was so captivated with who Jesus was. That the angels don't sing anything else. They sing holy, holy, holy because they're so captivated by who he is. I just want you. Because that's where their focus is. So when we come before God and we say, God, you are all that I am. My focus is on you. I don't want to talk about me. I just want to see you. I just want to worship you and glorify your name. While we're worshiping, Timmy, Timmy had this sweet moment where he just stopped playing. And in my flesh, straight away, I, I go to running a nice service and I think, come on, Tim. Fill the gap. Fill the gap. And then I remembered what I said to Tim before we started. This is not a show. Let's just worship him. Whatever you see, do. Just worship him. So then I get this conviction like, ugh. <laughs> but I was saying before, I don't, we don't know how long Moses waited when he waited on the Lord before he'd move. We read the next verse, but we don't know how long it was. What if that was two weeks? What if Moses sat on that hill and said, God, I'm not going anywhere before you move, and he waited two weeks? Just sitting there, I won't go unless you move before me. In our culture, we want to move, we want to move, we want to move, the next thing, the next thing. And God's saying, wait on me, and I'll show you what I'm going to do in this place. That's why we've, we've, we're going back into worship at the end of of. The sermon, because there's a, a position for us to take as a people to not just rush off and go back to our lives after we hear a nice sermon, but there's a challenge where we have to come before him and say, God, I heard what you said through the person who was speaking. And I will respond to you in that. Even if that means sitting in silence and waiting on him, but there's a response that comes up inside us. There's a response for us to go, Jesus, I want what's happening here. I want who you are. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This fear that I'm talking about of God, it's a reverence awe of him. The fear that Moses built the ark was a reverence of the voice that he heard. It was a reverence where he said, God, I don't want to be anywhere but where you are and what you've asked me to do. 
I'll never forget we had a, um, we used to have a massive big trampoline at my dad's house. Giant big, one of those ones that we didn't have the screen that protected you from falling off. We just got hurt a lot. But we had one of those big trampolines and we used to live on this, on, on, a, on the river. And um, my parents, my dad and my stepmom trusted us. I have, a four, I have four older brothers. And my dad and my stepmom trusted us one night to leave us at home on our own while they went out to dinner. And my stepsister was there. So one of my brothers said, hey, let's put a movie on for my stepsister. She'll get all settled in. And then let's push the trampoline to the river's edge and do flips off the trampoline into the water. I'm like, that sounds brilliant. So we push this trampoline, right? We push it all the way down. And everyone, I was the, last, I was the youngest. So everyone went before me. I was the last one to go. And the, one of the boys had, had already gotten wet. So but he went just before I did. So he jumps on the trampoline and does a flip in. It's really cool. But he wet the trampoline mat. So I get up on the trampoline. I'm like, this is going to be sick. I'm going to do a couple of flips. And I slip up and I smack my back on the water and I'm winded. And the fear of my dad rushed through all my brothers. We've killed Ben. <laughs> now we've got to explain why, why Ben's drowning in the river and we shouldn't have been down here. So I managed to get dragged out, come back. It's all good. But now we've got to push this thing back up the hill. Right? I'm hurt, winded, everyone else is tired because now they're... But we know dad's coming back. So we push this thing like you've never, ever seen. The fear of our dad was in all of us. We packed this scrum to push this, this trampoline back up to where it was, run back inside, all have showers. Dad knew. He's not an idiot. He comes home and he's like, what happened? Who was it? Which one he is? But the fear inside of me not was that my dad was kind of come back and beat us with a belt. The fear was that we knew we had let him down. He trusted us with something. He had given us something to do and we fluffed it. As soon as he left the door, we knew we were going to fluff it. So we know, Flip, we're never, ever going to get this opportunity again. He's, going to, he's wiping this from us. But there was a fear, not because he didn't love us, but because we knew that he had a specific set of ways to do things that would help us. I would have never gotten hurt had I listened to him. How many times can we say that as kids? I would have never gotten hurt had I just listened to my dad. <laughs> That's the same with this reverential fear. It's not, a, I'm scared that dad's going to, I'm going to be a good Christian because dad's going to hurt me if I'm not. No, it's God, you trust me with this. You trust me with everything you've given me. I don't want to stuff this up. I want to be where you've asked me to be because of who you are. Because if I'm there, I'm with you. And that's where I want to be. If I'm on my own thing, I'm not where you have me. So I'm not with you. And I can't bear that. See, we have to come back as a church to this place of, of God, it's all about you and everything you have for me, I want to be doing because of who you are. Especially in the West, we've had this sort of free-flowing grace. It's just okay. Let's just, it just move in and everything's awesome. But there is a call when we read the scriptures to say, no, look at your life. Take it for account. Everything he's asked you to do, hold very carefully in your hands and go, Jesus, the King above kings and Lord above lords has given me this task to do. I'm going to do it with everything that I am, all that I am. 
I've said this so many times that I don't, I don't want to play church and there's more and more language starting to come to that for me. And I'm going, okay, God, what's next? What else have you given me? What have you put before me? And how can I do it well? Not because I want to be a good Christian, but because you are who you said you are. And because I want to be right where you have me with everything that you have for me. Proverbs 9, 9, 10 says this. Give instructions to a wise man and he will, still, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Guys, there's so many ways we can apply the fear of God into a healthy way into our life. We heard Brad preach quite a while back about how God said to him that that's when he, when he married Naomi, that's my daughter. That's my daughter. Will you look after her and steward her as I've asked you to be? Man, God's given you a wife. And he's saying, that's my daughter. The fear of the Lord, like when <laughs> on all the movies where, where the, the daughter brings a son home and dad's cleaning the shotgun. That's my, that's my daughter. You better look after her. This is my church. You better look after her. Jess and I were talking a little while back and I said, man, who would elect to be a church leader? The weight that we carry to say, that's my church, Ben. I've given you a job to do. You better look after her. Now, God loves me and he's given me the tools to complete this task. But I have a fear of God that I want to do it well. Because I, it's his that I'm, I'm stewarding, I'm looking after. I want to do it in a way where I go, God, this is what I did with what you gave me. And he goes, my boy, well done. That's a fear of God that's healthy. If you're fearful that God's going to punish you if you're doing the wrong thing, unhealthy. That's from the world. I just read before that it brings destruction. But a fear of God because I want to be with you and I want to do what you're asking me to do is a healthy fear. We have to get back as a people to go, God, what have you given me? I'm going to steward it. I'm going to dust off that old thing that's been on my shelf for so long because you've given it to me. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings has called me to something and I want to achieve it because of who you are. I'm not going to sit in the back any longer. I'm not going to wait any longer. God, what have you given me to do? In every step, how do I take back being a husband? How do I take back being a wife? How do I take back being a father or a mother? Being a good employee, whatever it is. It's not, uh, <laughs> it's not about works, being a good Christian. It's about God, I want to do what you've asked me to do. Does that make sense? It's okay, I understand the silence. I don't need you to yell out. I just, I, I want to make sure we're getting this. The silence doesn't upset me because we're learning. I want you to go back here. If you say, I think he's wrong, spectacular. Go back here. Go and look. Because if I send you back here, God's going to show you something. But as a people, we have to start to understand, no, we are soldiers called to fight for him. 
I don't know if you've ever watched a soldier movie. There's a boot camp that's no fun. There's an understanding of hierarchy that's no fun. But when they go out onto the battlefield and they listen, they go where they're supposed to go. I think I preached this a few weeks ago, but there's a, there's a book called um, Extreme Ownership. I can't remember who the author is. But there's this scene that's in the book where these, these SAS soldiers are going and they've got to uh, hit a target and then get a helicopter out. And as they turn and start heading toward the helicopter, the helicopter gets shot down, exploded. And all the team look to the guy who's in charge and say, what now? And they go, point B, let's go. Everyone turns and they head out through point B. No questions, no if, buts or maybes, no arguing. They just listen and they say, let's go, next point. That's what God's asking us to do. That All this training where we sit and listen to his voice, when we read the scriptures, is because when we're out on the battlefield and something goes on, we go, God, where do I go from here? We turn left, son. Okay. There's no if, buts, or maybes. There's no, I don't know that's going to work. He's calling you to that place. That's a reverent fear to say he's in charge. He's in charge, and I want to follow who he is. I want to finish with this, and we're going to go back into, into worship. I don't know why this is on the end of my notes, but I felt compelled to write it. God, this is not about who's who in the zoo to steal Paul and Tracy's lingo. This is not about who has it right and who doesn't. It's not about which denomination has it more in and which denomination doesn't. What it's about is you and God talking to one another and understanding what he's saying. Let me tell you this. I'm going to get some stuff wrong because sometimes I'm going to be prideful and I'm going to try and do it my own way and I'm going to fall over and I'm going to scrape my knee back up and I'm going to get back up and reassess. Sometimes... I'm going to get it right and it's going to look insane. But it's not about that. I want you to trust Jess and I, but you've got to be going to this yourself. You've got to be seeking God and saying, God, what do you want from me? It's about you and him. Denominations in the church is one of the most hurtful things that's hurt us. Because we'll listen to what they say or what our own denomination says and we'll go, no, it's all right. But you don't even know what it says. You're just saying that that's what's right because the guy who stand at the sort of the barrel said it. Oh, it wouldn't normally be a barrel, a, a pulpit. God's giving us the opportunity to become strong disciples of Him. This is the house He's put you in. And Jess and I have been given, if this is your house, if it's another house, it's that house, that wherever God's put you. But Jess and I have been given a mandate to lead a people. But he's your capstone. He's your cornerstone. He's the one who leads and guides you. Please don't say this is what Ben said. This is what Ben showed me, but then I went and researched it and God showed me. Ben pointed me to a direction, but God revealed it to me. What's ten, what tends to happen is we get so intertwined with What does your denomination or my denomination believe that we leave God out entirely? Go to this. With your limited knowledge or maximum knowledge, your limited ability to read or your maximum ability to read, God will reveal himself to you. If you are willing to bring yourself before him, to pray, to bend your knee, to read what he's saying, 
other denominations are going to have it wrong and other denominations are going to have it right. We're going to have it wrong and we're going to have it right. But I tell you this, I will not stop chasing who he is. I will not stop bending my knee before him and saying, God, show me who you are. Show me who you are. Because that's what this is all about. It doesn't matter if the, if the church down the road is a hundred times being. That's fantastic. And every time I drive past, I drive down this street, I pray, God, show all three of us who you are. Show me. May we know you more. May we see you more. Because that's what it's about. He's given all of us the ability to hear his voice. Listen. Get to know this stuff. I still get three minutes to tell one more story because I can finish on one more story. Some of you may have heard this. I, I love Francis Chan. I think the guy is an absolute gun. Again, I don't love everything. But I think he is showing an understanding of chasing God like we've not seen. But he had what he calls a vision from whatever you want to call it. He said it was from God or I thought it up in my head. doesn't matter. The story is the same. But he said this. He went to preach before a massive church in a, in a stadium. And just before he was about to preach, he looked out over the stadium and he saw the people all with um, life jackets on. And he said, as I was watching people with life jackets on, the building began to fill with water. And he said, just before I was about to step out and preach, I realized I don't know who can and can't swim in this building. And he said, the only way I can find out is if I go and I take the life jackets off and go, can they swim? Yes, they can. They're good. Another one, life jacket. Can they swim? No, they're sinking. Grab them, put the life jacket back on. And he said, while I was preaching, I asked God, what was the life jacket? He said, it was my church. That we come and we sit in here and he said, I can preach a message, but I have no idea whether you actually know who he is from here. I have no idea if you can actually swim out there where it counts. I have no idea if you get tested and tried on your faith, whether you're going to come through. Because he said, we've created a system that is just get people in, sit them there and then get them out. I'm watching this thing weeping like... Like, oh my goodness, and Francis is preaching with so much fire. And I'm thinking to myself, he's right. How do we know what God is actually doing? I can preach the best 30 sermons, but if we're not a people connected to who he is, it's not worth anything. And I'm not saying that to beat us. I'm saying that to charge us up. I want to get on. I want to go. Let's go with this. I, I still believe, and as I was saying to someone the other day, I feel this desire like a kid at Christmas for next year. There's something stirring in the biggest way I've ever, I've ever seen. I've said this many times. I'm not, a, I'm not a New Year's resolution kind of guy. I'm like, it's just, that's, we're already doing it. Just keep doing what you're doing or change it two days before Christmas. It doesn't matter. But for this, I feel something. Very, I'm very excited and pumped. God has something for us. Not just us in this house, this, this nation. But what it's going to take is, a, is people willing to pick this up and give him everything. To have a fear of the Lord that says, God, I want you so bad. I want you beyond anything else. And, and I can see who you are and I want to fall before you face down, giving you my back in the most vulnerable position I can be because I trust you and I know who you are. That's the position we take. And then the position Jesus takes is he says, do not fear who I am because I am who I said that I am.
Does that make sense? Timmy, do you want to? So I want to go back into worship, and I want us to worship with a, a, a position in our hearts that God... I'm going to fear you like, like Noah did. I'm going to fear you that everything you've given me is not a maybe. I'm going to lay myself before you in such a place that, that everything that you are, I'm going to do my best to, to, to be and complete. I say this to encourage us, but what if there is a Noah in here right now? What if there is a Noah who's been given such a task that what they need is a healthy fear of God to say, God, I so want to complete what you've asked me that I will go ahead and do it. That that fear is so healthy to see God in such a way that says, you are all that I am, my Alpha and my Omega. My life is not worth living if I can't live for who you are. So why don't you stand? You don't have to... You don't have to uh, stay where you are if you want to come forward and worship at the front. But I also... There's quite a few people here that are ill as well, that are sick. Would you come, you don't have to come right now, but sometime while we're worshiping just now, would you come before the altar of God and honestly and earnestly give Him that sickness? Not to hold on to it, to say, God, I, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if, if you can do it. I believe you can heal me. But what if you were to come to give yourself to Him in worship and say, God, I want you to take all of this. And I'm going to lay it at your altar. I'm going to lay it before you because I don't want to carry it anymore. And I'm going to worship you because that's not going to hinder who I am and who I'm, who I'm going to worship. If you feel to do that, just come forward and just give him who you are in worship. So Jesus, we, we come right now before you. We come just to lay our lives down, God. We give everything that's, that is ours to you at the altar, Lord. Everything that's not ours, all the garbage, Father, the sickness and the pain, Lord. The thoughts in our head that aren't of you, we lay before the altar. We don't want it anymore, Jesus. We don't want to carry the garbage anymore. We give it over to you. Lord, we lay down our businesses. We lay down our finances. We lay down our relationships, God. Our children, we lay them down to you, Lord. God, we give it all over to you. We lay down our friendships, Father. We lay down our work colleagues, Lord. We lay it all before you. We say, have your way, Jesus.
Just give us the wisdom, God, to see it your way, Lord. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus.